Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast. My name is Philip and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 18, Lysistrata, Women on Top. So far with the works of Aristophanes, we've seen him aiming at the philosophers and their new way of thinking, and at the misuse of the legal system. Underlying both these themes was his anti-war stance and mistrust of the demagogue Cleon. The role of women and how they could do a better job than the current leaders is not a theme that is particularly present in these two plays, but it is present in several others, and particularly in Lysistrata. It's a play that's still performed today, probably more than any other by Aristophanes, and it has had several different interpretations over the years. We have no record of where Lysistrata was presented or how it fared in competition, but it is recorded in 411 BCE when Athens was on the cusp of great changes. The play starts from a point of despair, but which results in a comic masterpiece. As you will see, Aristophanes avoids some of the overt political criticisms of his earlier plays, but still produces biting satire and high comedy that was still a brave thing to do in the circumstances. Lysistrata is an Athenian woman and she's fed up with the grind of the seemingly never-ending war and decides to take matters into her own hands. She's arranged for the women of Athens and the surrounding towns and cities to meet in secret and with the help of a Spartan woman, Lampito, and women from the other city-states, she suggests that all the women should abstain from sex with their husbands until the war ends. This will, she says, undoubtedly force them to negotiate a peace quickly. At first, the women are unsure, but are eventually persuaded, and all take a long and solemn oath to maintain the withholding of their sexual pleasures, including some specifically mentioned positions. Her only exception is to recognise that women are naturally weaker than men, and could be forced into compliance. To this, she says, Yield then, but with a sluggish cold indifference. There is no joy to them in sullen mating. Besides, we have other ways to madden them. They cannot stand up long, and they've no delight, unless we fit their aim with merry support. To support this plan, Lysistrata has also arranged for the old women of the city to take control of the treasury held at the Acropolis, removing the ability of men to fund the war. We hear that these women are now in place, and all await the reaction of the men. A chorus of old men arrive outside the Acropolis, and are about to burn down the gates to try and smoke the women out, when a second chorus of old women arrive, complete with pitchers of water. The two groups argue, and the women prevent the men from entering, and give them a soaking in the meantime. A magistrate arrives, to collect silver so that oars for warships can be purchased. When he finds his way barred, he chastises the men for allowing their wives to behave so badly, and reflects on how women need supervision to prevent them from succumbing to their natural devotion to wine, promiscuity, and the love of esoteric cults. He orders the soldiers who have accompanied him to break down the doors, but all attempts to enter the Acropolis are soon beaten off by the women. When some order is restored, the magistrate questions Lysistrata about her plan, and she expounds on the frustration that war brings for women as they see men making stupid decisions and refuse to listen to their wife's good advice. She laments for the childless women, who will grow old while the men are away fighting, and, at perhaps her most poignant, says... Women have to take on more than twice your burden. Firstly, it is we who suffer the pains of childbirth, and then we who have to send them off as soldiers. 
She then constructs an elaborate analogy with Athens itself and women who productively spend their time spinning wool, suggesting that women could use their household skills to govern the city better than men. The women dress the magistrate as a woman and then as a corpse to illustrate their point. Eventually, and humiliated, he runs out of patience and goes off to report the whole business to his fellow magistrates. The two courses debate until Lysistrata returns to report that some of the younger women are already giving up on the cause in their desperation for sex. She says, What use is Zeus to our anatomy? Here is the gaping calamity I meant. I cannot shut their ravenous appetites a moment more now. They are all deserting. The first I caught was sliding through the back door close to the cave of Pan, the next hoisting herself with rope and pulley down, a third on the point of slipping past, while a fourth malcontent, seated for instant flight to visit Orsilicus on birdback, I dragged off by her hair in time. They're all snatching excuses to sneak home. Look, there goes one. Hey, what's the hurry, you? I must get home. I've some Milesian wool packed wasting away. The moths are pushing through it. Fine moths indeed, I know. Get back within. By the goddess, I'll return instantly. I only want to stretch it on my bed. You shall stretch nothing, go nowhere either. She manages to steady their resolve and returns to the Acropolis, hopeful that the men will give in soon. A young husband, Cynesius, enters looking for his wife, Myrony. He is desperate to have sex with her. While Lysistrata watches, and under her instruction, Myrony prepares a bed and massage oils for her husband as he becomes more and more excited, but then reminds him of the women's terms and locks herself in the Acropolis again. Cynesius leaves frustrated. A messenger from Sparta arrives and requests to see the council for peace talks. The men there are suffering the same privations as the men of Athens and they quickly agree with the magistrate that they should begin negotiations for a truce. The two courses become one, singing and dancing together as the peace negotiations continue. Lysistrata introduces a beautiful young woman called Peace and berates both men and women for their past mistakes and the petty arguments that have prevented peace before. With the beautiful woman before them, and still feeling the frustrations caused by the sex strike, all sides quickly come to an agreement. Husbands and wives are reunited, and they leave to sing and dance in the Acropolis. The play was first produced in the 21st year of the war, when the tide had turned against Athens. Two years previously, the expedition to relieve the Allies in Sicily, and then to take the island, had ended in disaster. Two fleets and many men were lost, and Sicily remained firmly in Spartan hands. As a result, allies began to lose faith in Athens, and several realigned themselves with Sparta. About the same time, Sparta gained support from Persia, who also sensed Athenian weakness. Joined in alliance with Persia, Sparta could look forward to a dominance of the Aegean that they'd never enjoyed before. In Athens itself, things looked bleak. The years of war, disease and hardship had depleted the population. Estimates vary, but it's thought that at the beginning of the war, men of fighting age in the city, with the means to afford to buy the hoplite armour, numbered about 25,000. Twenty years later, the number was likely nearer to 9,000. Unrest with the leadership was growing in the face of such a big defeat, and the question of how the city was even going to continue fighting the war. 
Democracy had survived up to this point, but following the defeat, dissatisfaction with the leadership grew amongst the influential aristocratic families. Democracy had always depended on these families to support it, and they did so as long as they could profit from it, take a controlling role in it, in some cases remain completely above it. But the war was costing them a lot, both in terms of lost productivity from their lands and in additional war taxes that were being levied on a regular basis. When that support began to break down, a return to oligarchy was planned by some. This was not such a strange move as it sounds to us today. Athens was the oddity amongst the Greek states. All the others were ruled by oligarchy or a tyrannos, with those in the Dalian League paying tribute to Athens and becoming subservient to the city to one degree or another. For the aristocratic families, oligarchy would have seemed a natural choice. Since the demise of Pericles, leaders like Cleon had come from a lower mercantile class, so there was no current leader that the aristocrats would have approved of enough to elevate to Tyrannos, even if that were possible to organise. Thucydides mentions that there were suspicions of a political plot as early as 457 BCE, and another just before the Sicilian expedition in 425 BCE, so it seems that things were already ripe for a change before the defeat in Sicily. And following that defeat, there was real concern among the general population that Spartan forces would press their advantage and soon be at the gates of the city. So change was in the air all around. In response to this, in 413 BCE, an emergency council of elders was elected to organise the funding of the military response and were given various powers to ensure order in the city. Members of the council and others working within the General Assembly were then able to win votes that appointed commissions of 10 or 20 men to rewrite the constitution. The agreed constitution, when it was delivered, replaced the existing emergency council with one of 400 men. They were to be unpaid, thereby denying any appointment to anyone outside of the upper classes. The aristocratic families had found their way back into power. There were five leaders who could then each choose 20 men to serve on the council. These 100 would then choose a further three councillors to make up the 400. It was the council of 400 who chose the 5,000 members of the new assembly. The new assembly was therefore made up of broadly like-minded people and controlled from the top down. The citizens had lost their assembly rights unless they were part of this group. Some sense of these changes must have been in the air as Aristophanes was writing his play, and I can't help but imagine the last-minute rewrites that must have been done during rehearsals as the situation changed quickly. There's no record of this and it's not possible to map developments against the timeline of events in the city, but it's plausible that the play was more vitriolic in its original form, but had to be toned down as freedom of speech became curtailed. Toned down or otherwise, Aristophanes' disgust at the ruling classes is still pretty obvious. He is saying that these men are so incapable of taking the right action that it would be better if women ruled us. For the time, that's quite an insult to the male audience, but of course, many would have taken the premise as so ridiculous as to see no harm in sitting back and enjoying all this silliness. The play is a bawdy sex comedy, and it's not easy to get that from reading the play or hearing quotes from it. The performance is everything, with the men sporting obviously erect fallacies and young women yearning for their husbands. It's all naturally comic and not deviant in any way, so all adults could enjoy it. This humour is timeless, and it relies on basic human behaviours that haven't changed much, 
and Aristophanes presents it so that the sincerity of his message comes through. The central conceit of the play, that the withholding of sex could influence men enough to change the course of the war, is and was intended to be ridiculous, and would have been seen as such by the audience. However much women presumably disliked their position in society, there was no prospect of them getting any sort of freedoms or political power at this time. Their only hope for any sort of influence was through their husband or other male family members. For a man, the constraints were much looser, and any man, so inclined, could find gratification with prostitutes without stigma. So safe to assume that if treated realistically, the marital sex ban would have been ineffective. The central character of Lysistrata is exceptional. Her name translates as dissolver of armies, so we're left in no doubt as to her strength of character from the start. She remains committed to her cause throughout and, unlike the other women, has no dependency on a husband or other man. She is never flirtatious and, although more serious in tone than the other women, she is smart and witty. As such, she is a likeable character and one we can respect. We enjoy the way she can get the better of the magistrate and the council and this was probably true of the audience of the time as well. Mostly, she appears before the Acropolis, the temple of Athena, patron goddess of the city. When the women pray to the goddess, they reject the usual animal sacrifice and elect to offer and drink wine in her name. This is more like a fertility rite and begins the process of disarming men that carries on throughout the play. Blood and fire, the symbols of male power, are rejected and neutralised as the women try to force the agenda. It's also suggested that Lysistrata is being directly compared to Athena and that increases her presence on the stage. Modern interpretations of the play have sometimes put a feminist reading on it, but originally this was not the intent. However strong and cogent the women are, and they are compared to the men who rail and shout and can't get much of a good argument going, the women do not gain any change in their place in society, but with the end of the war will return to the home and the rule of their husbands and fathers. If anything, with the exception of Lysistrata herself, the play reinforces the stereotype of women as the homemaker who need to be protected from their own weaknesses. In the opening lines exchanged between Lysistrata and Calanice, they say, Good day, Lysistrata. But what has vexed you so? Tell me, child. What are these black looks for? It doesn't suit you to knit your eyebrows as glumly as this. Calanice, it's more than I can bear. I am hot all over with blushes for our sex. Men say we're slippery rogues. Ugh. And aren't they right? Yet, summoned on the most tremendous business for deliberation, still they snuggle in bed. My dear, they'll come. It's hard for women, you know, to get away. There's so much to do. Husbands to be petted and put in good tempers. Servants to be poked out. Children washed or smoothed with lullabies. Or fed with mouthfuls of pap. It's hardly a statement of the independence of women. The play is much more concerned with offering a vision of how an honourable peace in wartime could be achieved. At the time, peace seemed like an impossibility, and this farcical situation is presented with the usual mix of satire and entertainment that we have seen previously, so that it's removed from the harsh reality and the extraordinary can become plausible within the world of the play. Nor is the play pacifist. It's never suggested that the war itself is immoral, only that it should not be continued beyond what is absolutely necessary. As with other old comedy, this is very localised. 
Some knowledge of local leaders, recent events and cult practices was assumed and hence some of the comic impact is lost on us today. For example, Lysistrata and Kalanese have the following exchange. Our country's fate is henceforward in our hands to destroy the Peloponnesians root and branch. What could be nobler? Well, wipe out the Boeotians. Oh, not utterly, please. Have mercy on the eels. Boeotian eels were considered a great delicacy in the city, so this would have raised a chuckle in the audience at the time, but meaningless to us without explanation. In the same part of the play, the Spartan Lampito arrives with women from other Athenian states, so there's an opportunity for some racially based humour to entertain the Athenians who, I imagine, still clung to their superior view of themselves. The reputation of the Spartan character was as shrewd and canny, but also a bit uncouth. I have seen one translation of the play that renders the Spartan lines in Scottish Highland dialect as a reasonable contrast to, against English to represent the difference in language and character between the Athenians and the Spartans. Lysistrata compliments her ironically and more like a prized animal than a fellow human, and Lampito in turn introduces Boeotian and Corinthian companions who both receive backhanded compliments from Lysistrata. Lampito refers to the Corinthian as a curvaceous woman with open features, to which Lysistrata says, yes, isn't she, very open, in some ways particularly. It's a line that was no doubt delivered with an exaggerated gesture and a knowing look, if that's possible, behind a mask. The implication is that Corinthians have a reputation for promiscuity. The comic highlight of the play is the scene between Marithne and her desperate husband, Synesius. It opens with Lysistrata saying, A man, a man I spy, a frenzied man, he carries love upon him like a staff. But it's not only sex on his mind. He also brings their child, who he has been caring for in her absence. When his description of her home falling into rack and ruin fails to entice her back, he tries to use the child to persuade her. But when this also fails, he sends the child home with the slave, and what is mostly on his mind is now obvious. First, he says he'll take on her guilt for breaking her oath, and she plays along as if complying, busying herself coming on and off stage, collecting items for his pleasure, cushions and then more pillows, then oils and perfumes. She lingers, fiddling with her clothes, and all the time he's in an agony of arousal. In the end, she says, I'm coming, I'm just drawing off my shoes. Are you sure you'll vote for peace? To which he replies, I'll think about it, and she runs off. He laments, I'm dead. This woman's worn me away. She's gone and left me with this anguished pulse. And the chorus of men can only sympathise. Bolt in your amorous delight, how melancholy is your plight. With sympathy your case I view, for I am sure it's hard on you. What human being could sustain this unforeseen domestic strain, and not a single trace of willing women in this place? Again, the sexual allusions in the language are clear and no doubt emphasised with some use of the phallus and exaggerated anguish from the male characters. It's been suggested that as the play progresses, the phallus on the male characters would be replaced with even larger and more prominent versions to represent the ever-growing frustration of the men. This and the scene between the young couple show how the plan is working and the men look even weaker and more ridiculous. 
The play is one of the transition points from old to middle comedy, in that Aristophanes continued to make significant moves away from the conventions of old comedy, some of which were begun in earlier plays. The use of the chorus is still limited, as in earlier comedies, but here is divided into two, the old men and the old women, and then become joined as one. That is a major expression of one of the big themes of the play, reconciliation, and unique in the surviving plays. Aristophanes used the split chorus in two other plays, The Birds, some six years earlier, and the contemporaneous Women Celebrating the Thesmophoria, but in both cases the split chorus appeared separately and did not become conjoined. As far as we know, it was a stage effect that had not been seen before in quite that way, which probably underlined the theme strongly to the audience. And let's not forget that female roles would have been played by male actors, adding a further twist to the gender confusion of the play. The most distinctive feature would perhaps have been the large erect phallus that we think was worn by all the main characters in the comedy. Even with a play not so centred on sex as this one is, the phallus must have led to visual innuendo and crudity that we can't get from the basic texts, and would have given an undercurrent of ridiculous rude joking. There are also numerous mentions of staves, sticks, spears and swords carried by the male characters, which could have been treated as phallic too. It gives the impression that the Athenian audience was an odd mixture of serious-minded people who expected their theatre to speak to their current concerns and political and social issues, while at the same time enjoying a good laugh at crude and silly antics on stage. I think it's very difficult to grasp exactly how this worked for them and how successful that mix was. As Aristophanes wrote many satiric and humorous plays, which were much admired both by contemporaries and after, it seems safe to assume that they were successful, or at least popular. However, they did not, as far as we can tell, have any direct impact on any political or social policy. In this play, Aristophanes also dispensed with a parabasis. Its usual content of praise for the poet and criticism for the leaders and the audience is covered lightly in the Song of the Joined Choruses, which is positioned where the traditional second short parabasis would have been. But otherwise, Aristophanes seems not to have felt the need to include this, and it's unclear why. Possibly under the constraints of the coming oligarchy, he decided or was persuaded that such overt criticism was best avoided, but there's no clear evidence on that point. Old comedy also used the device of rhetorical debate extensively, known as the Aegon, which took the form of a rhetorical debate between two characters, where each was given equal weight. In Lysistrata, that debate style still exists in the scene between Lysistrata and the magistrate, but it is more an opportunity for Lysistrata to express her view, with the magistrate merely asking questions or expressing displeasure at her views, and not offering a proper debate on the subject. This change probably had two effects. For some, it would reinforce the view that the idea of women being in charge was absurd, as it all ends with the comical humiliation of the magistrate, as he is dressed first as a woman and then as a corpse. The more subtle interpretation is that the rhetorical argument comes to the only logical conclusion, as a good rhetorical argument always should, that war was women's work, and is no better than a living death for women, while they waited for their menfolk to return. The point had been made earlier that in the marriage market women have a short shelf life, while men could marry a woman at any time, at any age. The rhetoric may be unconventional, but maybe it would have been clear enough to those open-minded enough to see it. Lysistrata is a strong and original piece, 
both in the high concept of its proposition, the illogical storyline, which nevertheless has structure within the concept, and the well-drawn characters. Even the minor characters have their own speech pattern and personalities. Despite some loss of understanding due to the localised satire, some of the verbal jokes and wordplay survive, and the visual jokes still work. If we peel away the sex comedy, we can see some more subtle questions being raised about the relationship between men and women. The women come out as much stronger and better characters than the men. In Greek society, gender relations were usually pitched in terms of what were good characteristics and traits for men as being bad things in women. In the character of Lysistrata, that negative is turned around and she is shown as better than the men. That, as I've already noted, would have made this a very difficult play to watch for much of the male audience. But they are characters that have become more appreciated in later times and have enabled the play to survive to today and to be more appreciated and well-known than any other comedy. As we leave Aristophanes and reflect on his output and the brave and resolute stance he took over the years producing it, I find it difficult to think of any modern writer who could get away with the amount of invective and personal criticism of individuals that marks most of his works. In translation, and with the passing of time, this loses much, if not most, of its effectiveness, and now we have laws of defamation that would prevent some of this work even being produced in similar context. But he sits at one of those points in time where it was possible, where it was entertaining, and where it might have made a difference. Next time, we move on a little in time and to the gentler humour of Menander. He is the only surviving example of new comedy, which extends its reach into the Roman period and beyond. But, for the moment, we're still firmly in Athens and looking for a laugh in difficult times. I will look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. Thank you.